0: I guess we sensed, Sharon, that God had made a decision about her life and, you know, it wasn't something going wrong in her life. This was mixed. This was an aspect of every cell of her body. It defined who she was. And so we felt like the response of faith is not to pour everything into asking God to do things differently, but to pour everything into asking God to give us the strength we needed to enjoy every day that he gave us with her and to allow the number of days he gave us with her to be enough for us. I'm Sharon Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope
1: resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Each of our resources is designed to offer help and hope to people who are experiencing life crises that are often lived in isolation, or they might be lifelong struggles, or they are difficult to talk about. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Nancy Guthrie. Nancy and her husband, David, have an adult son, Matt, and they have had two children, a daughter, Hope, and a son, Gabriel, who were born with a rare genetic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. Each lived about six months. I first met Nancy through her book, Holding On to Hope, A Pathway of Suffering to the Heart of God where Nancy shares many of the lessons that she has learned from this agonizing journey. And then I read her book, Hearing Jesus Speak, Into Your Sorrow. Both books have drawn me into the heart of Jesus in a profound way. Nancy, welcome. Oh, thank you, Sharon.
0: I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk to you and those who listen to this resource.
1: Well, after the death of our son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, I desperately needed somebody ahead of me. In this grief journey, I felt at times like I was losing my mind. And it was someone who had lost three children Mm -hmm. who was able to give me the freedom to grieve honestly and transparently and to trust the Lord to be there for me, to be able to pound on his chest and ask questions, hard questions, without fear that he was going to reject me. And so that's one of the reasons we produce these resources, because we are calling back to people coming behind us, that God is sovereign and he can be trusted. And that is one thing that has really drawn me to you and the ministry that you and your husband have. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your life and especially that period in 1998, 1999, where things really started changing for both of
0: you. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian college, and I started working at a Christian publishing company right out of college. And that's where I met my husband, David. And a few years later, we had Matt, and that's when I left my job at a publishing company and started working from home. Uh, A few years into that, we moved to Nashville, and at that point, I knew that something needed to change in my life. I was so busy for God, and yet not really in relationship with God. Mm. I could talk about a lot of theological things, Christian things, and I was involved with all of these big-name Christian speakers and writers and everything, but I just felt like the biggest hypocrite. Mm. Like, if anybody asked me the question, you know, what's God doing in your life right now? if I, I I would have come up with a good answer that would have sounded maybe even impressive, but the reality was I just, I, I felt so much distance from him, and Didn't know how I would ever feel close to him again. And when I went to Nashville, made a commitment to a weekly, really high accountability Bible study. And God began to work in me. As I studied the word, it convicted me. And I repented. And I began to change. And there was a sense in which I began to wonder what God was preparing me for in the future.
1: Let me ask you, uh, you said that you repented, but you were such a good
0: person <laughs> What in the world You don't know you me very well, <laughs> Sharon. You know, that's what happens in God's word. We think we're we think we're fine and we read the Bible and the Holy Spirit y- uses it to put up a mirror in front of us to see our lives in light of God's word. I saw my apathy. I saw my little rebellions. I saw the value systems I have that don't line up with God's value system. I saw misplaced priorities. I saw faulty ways of just thinking. And my perspective about things began to change. Mm. So the other thing that was happening Sharon, just you know, week by week, as I watched that Bible teacher up front, I just remember beginning to think, wow, what she's doing is so significant. And I can't imagine doing anything more significant in my life than that. But I just thought, well, I'll never have the ability to do that or the opportunity to do that or the credibility to do that. So um, our son, son Matt, was about 8 years old when I gave birth to our daughter, Hope. Mm -hmm. And when Hope was born, it was immediately obvious that not everything was quite right. Mm -hmm. She had club feet, but the pediatrician said, don't worry about that. We'll put cast on her feet and um but you're going to want to have the pediatrician take a good look at her you know and so he came and he had made a list of all the little things he called them wrong with hope but said that they most likely added up to something more significant and it was on her second day of life when a geneticist from Vanderbilt hospital came and examined her and he told us that he suspected she had Zellweger syndrome um, and that there was no treatment and no cure and that most children with that syndrome live less than six months. Mm. And he handed us two sheets of paper Xeroxed out of a medical textbook that listed everything that was wrong in Hope's body and everything that would go wrong and then lead to her death, which I found overwhelming. I, I couldn't look at that sheet of paper mm. for about five days. So, you know, this birth experience just immediately plunged into... Very new territory for me and David as we immediately began to grapple, not with how we were going to raise hope Mm. and enjoy hope, but how we were going to care for hope in her situation and usher her into the presence of God Mm. in a very short time.
1: When you got this news, did you want to hide or did you want other people to enter into this journey with you? I wanted other
0: people. And, you know, at first we weren't telling people. We had decided we would wait until some blood tests that were only done one place in the country mm-hmm. told us for sure because it was such difficult news. Then we wanted to tell the world and needed to tell the world. And the way we did it, I mean, I had, I'm i kind of a planner, and so, you know, Hope was born in Thanksgiving. So my plan had been, okay, she'll be born, and then we're going to do a picture Christmas card that will show Hope, and it will be kind of a combination birth announcement christmas card and we did end up doing that but it was very different i'm sure than right. what i expected um you know we we informed people that her life was going to be very short and very difficult and we told them we don't want you to stay away we want you to love us we want you to know hope and we want you to know that as hard as this is going to be we don't think our life is a tragedy but that she's been given to us a gift and that she has a purpose in this world, uh, that we want to glorify God in the way that we walk through this time with her. And it was amazing. So we sent out a lot of those. We gave them to everybody we knew just because it began to be so awkward and hard. People would say, we have a new baby. you know. They, oh, you had your baby. This is great. Mm. And then we would have these conversations where I'd have to decide if I was going to say, yes, it's great and she's going to die. I mean, that's kind of a conversation stopper. And it was hard to do, and, you know, it was an unfamiliar syndrome, and, you know, there's so much explaining. So we just thought, okay, this is going to explain it all. And so we sent that card out. It was, a, it was an amazing thing, Sharon. Just the ministry that that little card ended up having, I, I think because in our Christian world, many of us perceive that the response of faith in the midst of that kind of news— is I'm going to gather everyone I know to pray for God to do a miracle to change it. So true. And that wasn't our response. Now, it's not that we thought this was too hard for God. God spoke the world into being. He raised Jesus from the dead. This is not too hard for him. But I guess we sensed, Sharon, that God had made a decision about her life. And, you know, it wasn't something going wrong in her life, this was mixed. This was an aspect of every cell of her body. It defined who she was. And so we felt like the response of faith is not to pour everything into asking God to do things differently, but to pour everything into asking God to give us the strength we needed to enjoy every day that he gave us with her and to allow the number of days he gave us with her to be enough for us to trust him with that.
1: That's such a supernatural response that comes from the word, I think. It's choosing to believe what the word says. Shortly after the death, probably days after the death of our son Mark and his friend Kelly, our older son Chuck, uh, just out of the clear blue said, you know, Mom and Dad, if God were to walk in here right now and say, if you want, I'll give you Mark back, but you are gonna be responsible for the choice He said, I would say no because I know that God has reasons for this. And I know that even though I don't understand the reasons, I I would be afraid to change what God has already planned. That was, it was good for us to hear him say that because when you're in that kind of pain, all you want is for the pain to go away. You want whatever it is that you treasure to be brought back to you. And so that is, uh, I think that's an amazing response to a very well, broken what place. what I had to
0: wrestle with, and it sounds like you all wrestled with as well, I had to wrestle with, is God for me? Mm-hmm. And are his plans for me good? Yeah. And, and I just realized that my definition of good is not always his definition of good. And that I needed to trust him, that if he loves me, and I know he does, I I look at the cross and I see that he loves me, not at my circumstances. I know he loves me. And if I believe he's in control of everything, and I know he is, I look at the cross and I see that God the Father intended this. It says it was his prearranged plan, even the death of his own son. If those things are both true, then I just have to accept that what he allows into my life is purposeful. Mm -hmm and that it's intended for my ultimate good and for his greater glory. And I think the challenge of the Christian life, especially in the midst of this kind of loss that you've experienced, that I've experienced, that many of the people listening to this have experienced, is to say, okay, I'm going to trust you that you really are going to work in this and through this. Not that this thing is good, but that you will live up to your promise to cause all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And I don't quote that verse lightly at someone in the midst of suffering. Don't we hate that? I mean, I I, I find if that fo- verse gets quoted at you, you resent it. And yet, don't you find, Sharon, that this is your greatest hope in the midst of loss? If this is not true, then all we have is despair. If, if God can't cause all things to work to- together for good, then life is very dark, and we are just at the whims of chance so and you and I know that that's not true and so when we can really see that and, and not just have it quoted at us and not just say it but come to the place I think it's something in, in our situations we have to wrestle down and go I believe this and and I need my belief in this truth to begin to change how I feel um, because our feelings are shaped by what we truly believe to be true and I think there's a lot of biblical truth. That we think that's—I know that's what I ought to think, <laughs> what I ought to believe—but there are a lot of things in Scripture. Just take some time to say, "Now I really believe that," and that's shaping how I'm able to respond to this.
1: I, I resonate with everything you're saying. The night of Mark's death, I remember in my heart saying, "I know you're sovereign," and frankly, right now that doesn't comfort me. And you know, I'm as a Bible study teacher, I. I told women, he, you can trust him. He, he puts broken lives back together again. But that night, I, I felt like I had lied to all those women. And mm-hmm. so for me, I love that you said we have to wrestle it down because it took time for me to reconcile his love with his sovereignty. And I, I, to me, that, those were the two pieces where now his sovereignty is my greatest comfort and his love because he's good. He's good all the time and his plans are perfect. And listener, you may be really fresh in that dark place and we're further along. And so we've been able to work through some of these things and we still have to work through them. So we want to encourage you that this is not a one and done deal. This is something that some people struggle with more than others, but keep on struggling, keep on going to him and running to him. And um, Nancy, you um, you knew that your child was going to leave you in yeah. six months, and then it happened again. Yeah. Um, how did you find joy? And mm-hmm. I mean, I I've tried to imagine knowing that my child was going to die, and I've met mothers who have walked that pathway, and they have found joy in it. But how do you find mm-hmm. purpose and joy knowing? You don't know when, but
0: it's going to be Mm -hmm. soon. So you're talking about the fact that I got pregnant again, even though my husband had a vasectomy, because um, this was a genetic gene trait that Mm -hmm. we both share. So we knew after we had hope. We didn't know this Mm -hmm. before hope, but after we had hope, then we Mm -hmm. knew that whenever we have a child, that child would have a 25% chance of having Mm -hmm. the fatal syndrome. So David had a vasectomy, and evidently it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so I did discover that I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then we had to wait to go through some prenatal testing. I mean, we decided it's, it's, it's going to be helpful to know which direction we're headed in mm. before we share this with our son and with our parents and with our world. Mm. And so I had to wait a number of weeks to go through prenatal testing and then wait for the results. And that day came then when we found out I was going to have a son this time, and he also had the fatal syndrome.
1: How did you deal with the anxiety of waiting?
0: Well, uh, <laughs> I, a, couple, a couple of things. First of all, I, um, I remember... I told you about that card we'd written when we had hope. I wrote the basics for sending out a card again. I just didn't know how it was going to end. The waiting room is hard. It is hard. And and David and I, we, we felt two very strong competing emotions. One was this cautious sense of joy. Like, here's this thing we ruled out that God has overruled, and maybe he's going to give us another child to raise and enjoy that we didn't expect. And we really wanted it at that point. Our family didn't feel complete. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's going to ask us to do mm-hmm. this again. And can, can we do this again? And why would he ask us to do mm-hmm. this again? So there was that, you know, we did just tell a couple godly friends. And it was interesting, Sharon. I mean, a few of the friends we told are some of the godliest people I know. Mm-hmm. And their instant response was a couple things like, First of all, they wanted to reassure us this child's going to be fine. I remember my OBGYN said, "Don't you worry, honey. This child's going to be fine." And I just thought, "Why are you saying that?" Uh, and it was his optimism and him wanting to reassure me, but that wasn't helpful because that wasn't real. I didn't I didn't take hold of it because I knew it wasn't realistic. Um, or I think about a really godly teacher that I worked with and she said, "Well, this child is going to be healthy because there's no way God would do that to you. And other people would say, you know what, this this is going to be a healthy child. This is God's, his reward to you for your faithfulness in losing hope. And none of those things rang true to me. I just thought, what a modern Western idea that we should only get one hard thing in our lives and then be exempt from it the rest of our lives. And I have to admit to you, there was a part of me that just thought, if this ends up that it is a healthy child, in some ways, that will be frustrating to me because it will just play into all these people's wrong theology, wrong theology of God. Somehow, God owed me, Mm. or you know, only a good God would you know do this. And so then we got the news uh, finally, you know, that he was that he had the fatal syndrome. And I, I remember at that point, Sharon, I. Uh, I had a business meeting to go to to in in San Antonio. And I said, I'll come, but I just, would you buy me an extra hotel night that Mm -hmm. I could just spend a night in hotel? I just felt like I needed a night to cry Mm -hmm. and pray and think about what was ahead. And the Lord just met me there. And I just remember sitting there on the bed right before I left that room and just saying to God, okay, God, if you're going to ask, me to do this again, then do something really good with it. Do something that has a weight of glory that outweighs the cost for me and for us. And even sitting here with you today, Sharon, is a bit of that weight of glory that he has been so faithful to do. But your question was, you know, how did I get through that time? You know, sometimes I think we think if we're Christians, we should never be afraid. I, I think what it, what it means to trust God is to feel fear and run to him with it and keep running to him with it. And so there was fear, especially that day he was born. I remember being in there and, you know, honestly, we, we thought maybe he'll be with us six months, I hope. Maybe he'll be with us six minutes. We don't know. And even though we'd been through it before, I just remember this huge rush of fear just right before they began to say, push, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just remember grabbing David's hand. I just, I felt like, you know that feeling when you're on a roller coaster and you're going click, 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 click up and you're at the top and you know you're about to go whoosh. And that's how I felt, Mm -hmm. you know, just as Gabriel was being born. But his life was such a blessing to us. In many ways, you know, it it was very different than our experience with hope because, We weren't shocked. We didn't have to reckon with the fact that our child was going to die when he was born because we had known. And honestly, we didn't even feel cheated by his life because from the very beginning, we knew it would be short. And we didn't have to figure out how to take care of him because we knew we had done that before. So we were able to just immediately enjoy him and enjoy every day God gave us with him. And he gave us 183 days with him. And we say goodbye. And, but then is when that really hard time comes, you know, to go back to being a family of three again. And that quietness, I just, I'm sure you guys experience this, and I imagine many of your listeners experience this. You know, there's, there's the hubbub of the life, if, or then the hubbub of death and a funeral and family. And then it gets so quiet, and there's just this huge empty place and a quietness and a disappointment that can be overwhelming. And when those feelings hit,
1: were you able to address them right away and move on, or did it take time? Does well, it
0: still take time? I think, you know, many years before I had hope, I lost a job. And That might not seem like a big loss. I felt embarrassed how bad? how big that loss mm-hmm. felt to me. And I went to a counselor because I was really struggling. And I remember him saying to me, when you feel sad, let yourself be sad. You know what, Sharon? I I think that was all about the greater sadnesses to come. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. But I never forgot it. And still to this day, when I feel sad, I let myself be sad. You know, I think so often people treat sadness like it's an enemy and like we need to be cheered up or someone who needs Mm -hmm. to be cheered up or we've got to do everything to not be sad. And the thing is, when you lose someone or someone who's of great value to you, it makes sense that you'd be sad. Mm -hmm. They're worthy of a sadness that their presence is not with you anymore. You've lost something significant. So sadness isn't a problem. So, you know, in terms of those days I let myself be sad, and the, the form that often took for me was, you know, I'd get in the car to go somewhere, and if I was by myself, usually I spent all that time in tears. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I had tears that I didn't want my husband and my son to have to hear, because they hurt, it hurt them to hear me really sob and weep, and so I'd go to the park and shed tears, or I'd go up to what would have been Hope or Gabe's bedroom and close the door and let out some tears. And for me, I just felt like there were so many tears that needed to come out. And so here I am, you know. It's Hope uh, died 18 years ago. Gabe, 15. And I still have tears that come out. But it's not a problem. It's It speaks of their worth and my love. It
1: reminds me of the passage in Ephesians where... Paul says that before the foundation of the world was laid, he created good works for us to do. Mm. And that is the scripture that got me out of bed Mm. in the mornings. Sometimes I would say, okay, I could barely function. And I would try to do the load of wash, and I'd say, this is the good work for today. (laughs) But most of the time, it was the crying. You know, it was, this is the good work for today. This is a good work that you have for me to do. And of course, the passage where it says he collects all of our tears in a bottle, that was very comforting to me, the presence of the Lord, that Mm -hmm. he's present. He's not just in the room with us. But he is active in that room, you know, Psalm 23, that he walks with us yeah. with, through, and he's working for us, and he's doing something through us and in us in a supernatural way. But I love I love you saying that, about the tears and the sadness. that. And, and another thing I would say to people if they would tell me a story about Mark and I would start crying, and they would say, Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I would say, Oh, thank you for thank you. giving me the, the opportunity to cry because the tears are there all the time and it's good to have someone to cry with so I think that's a beautiful picture of holding on to joy but recognizing the reality of where you are now you mentioned your husband and your son and I think that's a very significant topic of conversation is the different ways that people grieve you have retreats respite retreats for husbands and wives who have lost a child what are the differences between men and women? Mm. Are there would you say there are general differences in the way men and women grieve or just
0: there is Well, I hate to be too stereotypical. I know. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've done 26 retreats oh, so far wow. since 2009. There are retreats there are always 11 couples and me and David for the weekend out in the 12 bedroom lodge mm. in the country. So as soon as we say men are this way and women are this way, then there's a couple that it's the exact opposite. Right. However, I can talk about some tendencies that we see. Mm -hmm. I think most women process through talking. It's just the way we are, right? Mm -hmm. We We process through talking. I appreciate this. My husband often says, women are more practiced at expressing emotion through words. So men have fewer words and they're not as practiced at expressing emotion through words. Well- That's just like a setup (laughs) in the midst of grief for two people Mm. grieving very differently. Mm. So what we see oftentimes is that here's the woman. She's got lots of words. He doesn't. He wants her to just stop talking about it because she seems so sad. And he thinks if she would stop talking about it, maybe she wouldn't be so sad. And why are we obsessing about it? Let's Let's move forward. And she thinks, why won't you talk with me about this? Aren't you grieving too? Have you just... Are you totally shut down? Are you not feeling anything? When the reality is, we process it differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oftentimes, husbands feel a sense of needing to be the strong one in the family. They see their wives spending so much time being sad and focusing on that sadness and I think they sometimes feel as if, okay, there's got to be some strong, sane, together person in the family. I'm going to lead the charge forward, and I'm, by golly, going to pull her out of this hard, dark place. And so, once again, what that does is that leaves her feeling alone, and it leaves him feeling frustrated that he can't seem to get her out of this. So, You know, couples really have to give each other a lot of grace to grieve at their own pace, at their own time. And a lot of couples talk about, you know, feeling at times one's up and one's down. And I think one of the most significant things David and I figured out is that we have the tendency And this is all of life. This is not just grief. We have the tendency of thinking that our spouse should know what we want and need. I mean, I just think about, you know, early years in my marriage. I thought it was so romantic if he would just know what to get me on my birthday and know what I wanted. That seemed terribly romantic that he would. Well, I've figured a ways in. Why would I expect him to be able to read my mind and know what I want? right? And how much more in the midst of grief? What happened for us, Sharon, at one point, I realized we'd, we'd crawl into bed. Oftentimes I'd held my tears in all day long. We'd get into bed. Maybe there was something on some TV show that sparked it. Maybe it was just I needed to let some out. I'd begin to weep or sob. And David, and however David responded, it annoyed me. You know, if he reached over to hug me, like to try to soothe away my tears, that kind of bugged me because I wanted to let him out. And I'd been waiting all day. <laughs> And if he just ignored me, that really hurt my feelings. Like, don't you see I'm even sad over here? And so I found myself always frustrated with him. And I realized one day, I thought to myself, well, what is it you do want him to do? And I thought, Mm. I don't know. And then I thought to myself, well, if I don't know, how would I expect him to know? Mm. I've set him up for failure and for us up for conflict and alienation Mm. in the midst of grief. And so at one point I said to him, you know what, honey, when we're in bed and I begin to weep, If you would just reach over and put your hand on me, just on my shoulder, whatever, it lets me know you realize I'm sad and you're here with me and you're sticking here beside me, but that you're not trying to get me to stop crying. Mm. I mean, just that little articulation of here's what I want and need, that made a huge difference. We still use that. It still Mm. works. So a big part of for couples figuring out how to grieve together is learning how to articulate those things and to realize that you know things like some of us have a strong drive to go to the grave some of us have an aversion to it some of us just want to pull the the covers over our head on those anniversary days and birthdays and others of us want to fill up the house with people who knew and loved the person who died and Mm So to negotiate and navigate those things together, it's hard. It, it puts the best of marriages through something very difficult. But I would also say, Sharon, and I wonder if this has been yours and Chuck's experience, it also has bonded us together in a way that I feel like nothing could ever tear us apart. We've been through the worst thing that we can imagine. And it's bonded us together in a way that I think very few things could do.
1: I absolutely agree with you. you. You get to see inside of one another. And we see each other at our worst, our very worst, where we would prefer that nobody sees us yeah. that way. Um, and yet we're still loved. We're still accepted. There
0: is an, also an aspect, I think, of, yeah, you see each other at the lowest, hardest time. And I respected how David dealt with this hard thing in his life. Mm -hmm. And I think he would say he respected. Not that we always did it perfectly, but that created just more opportunity to love and appreciate each other.
1: I'm so glad you said that, because it's true. You see you you see that one you love so much, dealing with such darkness in courageous ways, and you know how painful it is. They have to die to self yes. in so many ways. And you're right. I, I think that makes your love grow deeper yeah. for that person. Absolutely, yeah. A friend of mine who lost a child uh, said that, a friend of hers told her, remember, most husbands need physical intimacy when they're hurting. Don't forget that. And she said she found out that was absolutely true. Exactly. She said, I was not interested yeah. in having a physical relationship with my husband because I was so
0: broken, mm-hmm. and yet he needed me desperately. And we talk about this at our retreats, and it's always a little bit awkward, of course. Of course you imagine? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, one thing I say there is that uh, if you I think my theory is that if you boil if you were able to put grief into a pot on the stove and you boiled it down to its essence, uh-huh. you'd have a little pile of loneliness uh-huh. that grief is pervasively is there such a pervasive loneliness to grief and We can sometimes think in the midst of grief, if I'm this lonely, it must be that my spouse is not being there for me in the way, so we can start pointing fingers because of our loneliness, Mm -hmm. but once we realize that it's going to be lonely, whether if your spouse is perfectly there for you, whatever that means for you, you're still going to feel lonely, but then to go into the aspect of, you know, there is a special thing that only you uh, have been given the privilege to do to help soothe the loneliness of one another. Yes. And just like you, I love the way you put it. I might have to use that the way you said it. But I, I, I say to hus- husbands, understand that for your wife to set aside her grief and to focus and enter into sexual intimacy feels like a betrayal to her child. Mm. It feels like I, I'm, the, I'm the, the memory keeper the grief tender. And if I can enjoy myself and experience this pleasure and not have it be at the front of my mind, dominating my knives, something must be wrong with me. I must not have really loved my child. And so it feels like a betrayal. So it's just like, women, you have to tell yourself, this is not a betrayal. I'm going to set it on the shelf and I'm going to enter into this. It's still going to be there on the shelf in a little while. But this gives me the opportunity to soothe the loneliness of my husband and for him to soothe mine, yes, you think you're not interested, but the sexual experience beh- between a husband and wife, it has a way of soothing loneliness that nothing else does. Yeah. And so if you can, husband, if you can be patient to recognize mm-hmm. it does take some effort and focus on her part to set it on the shelf, mm-hmm. and wife, if you can be willing to set it on the shelf and enter it in, and not... Not express to you, husband, that you think something's wrong with him because he wants to have sex with you in the midst of your grief, but instead recognize he wants to connect with you in that deep way. Just, and I relate it to, a wife never wants to feel like her husband looks down on her for wanting to talk about it, because that's the way she processes it. Don't look down on your husband, because he wants to have a sexual closeness with you, thinking... That that's the wrong way or that's a way of not dealing with it. That's that's not necessarily the case. I think that's some of the best advice
1: that we can give to newly bereaved parents too. Just that part of what you just said about respecting the way that we're different Mm -hmm. and honoring that by the way we interact and respond with
0: one another. I just a few weeks ago I had dinner with a woman who is a Christian sex therapist. And I talked this through with her a little Mm. bit. I said, what else do I need to be saying Mm. to grieving people? And I thought this was really good, and I'm going to start using it. She said to tell these couples, you don't have to go all the way to 10. That is really good. Yeah. 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 For for grieving couples, Mm. especially when it's hard, Mm. to just move toward each other Mm. in whatever way you can. So that rather than saying just absolutely nothing and a coldness physically toward one another, maybe you really aren't ready to set it on the shelf completely Mm. in the way you might have to for a 10, Um, but to be willing to just keep making inroads into that. And I thought that's, that's wise for grieving people.
1: Another uh, piece of advice that was really good for me was a bereaved mother said to remember, you can't take your words back.
0: Oh boy, she had lost her
1: son uh, about two years before we lost our son, Mark. And she said, I said things to my husband mm-hmm. that de- were devastating to our marriage and have taken us a long mm-hmm. time to rebuild. So be careful. You can't take your words back. And, and we know a greeting people have a hard time with self-control so knowing, just having that in front of you, I think was a really good
0: piece of advice. Well, to be angry, I think a, a lot of times it's more comfortable to be to be mad than to be sad. Mm-hmm. To be sad feels purposeless and worthless and weak, but to be mad feels empowering. <laughs> like I'm going to accomplish something with this mm-hmm. anger, and I and mean and it feels somebody. justified. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, oftentimes I think we have to realize in the midst of our sadness that. We may be refusing to process the loss through sadness Mm -hmm. and choose anger instead. And that oftentimes spews into this already very painful, Mm -hmm. heavy, dark place of a house in the midst of grief. It spews something toxic that, as you said, words that can't be taken back and inflicting more hurt on others who are already hurting. Yes, yeah.
1: Nancy, you and I... um, Went into this darkness with a, a pretty sound foundation spiritually. You were a Bible study teacher. You were writing Bible studies. Were you writing Bible not studies? The f- not, not at that before, time. Mm-hmm. All right, not at that time. And so, through the thank thank God's grace, through the darkness, His light has led us and has become brighter. And intimacy with Him has grown deeper. Speak to that bereaved parent who doesn't understand what we're talking about. When we're talking about that spiritual foundation, how do they find hope Mm. in the kind of hope that we have experienced in our own grief journeys? Mm.
0: Well, when you talk about hope, you know, we have to recognize, first of all, that we use that word in a very different way than the Bible uses that word. Most of us think of hope as a perspective, an anticipation of something good is going to happen. And And we think of hope as like a crossing our fingers, like, I'm not sure it is, but I hope. Well, when the Bible talks about hope, the Bible talks about something that's certain, just not experienced yet. The Bible talks about hope. Hope in the Bible is centered not on circumstances. It's centered on a person, the living person of Jesus Christ. So to take hold of hope is to, in a sense, take hold of him. But even that can sound just like very spiritualized to people. I would say to a person in the midst of grief, and maybe somebody is telling you Jesus is the answer, and you think to yourself, I don't know about that. Where do I even start? And if Jesus isn't the answer, why didn't he just keep this from happening in the first place? I would say to you that you have been given a gift in a package that you would have never asked for this package this loss to be to come into your life but it has raised to the surface in you some ultimate questions you're no longer satisfied with religiosity or philosophy or clichés about how life in this world works instead you've been given this gift of an intense personal need to understand what God is doing in this world, who he is, why he would have ever allowed this, why the world works this way, Mm. that people are born and die. And I really do think that is a gift, Sharon. Mm. It was a gift to me as someone who was a believer before it happened, because what the gift does, it sends us, well, it can send us two different directions. Many people, those questions send them running away from God maybe they go to the Bible and it seems inscrutable to them. It doesn't make sense to them. Or just what they've understood about what Christianity is, about who Jesus is, hasn't made sense to them. And they use this hard, dark experience to run away from him. But if you can use this hard, dark experience to drive you toward him, to say, okay, I don't understand him, but I want to. I can't make sense of this, but I want to. And if you can find someone perhaps who knows and loves the Bible, who's not a (laughs) know-it-all, but is willing to sit down with you just together. Maybe you get together once a week and you decide you're going to read through a book of the Bible together and talk about it. And there's an amazing thing that happens, Sharon. I bet you've experienced this too. The Bible, though it's an ancient book, it is actually God speaking. It's not like any other book. God speaks to us through his word. We think, okay, I'm reading this. I'm not sure if I even understand it. But the word of God, says the book of Hebrews, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the bones and marrow, and it lays bare the thoughts and motives of the heart. That's what happens when you read, seek to understand and apply and think about and talk about and work your way through the Bible. God goes to work on you in that way. And it's not necessarily that he answers all of your questions. I think sometimes what he does is reveals you've been asking the wrong questions. <laughs> he gives you answers to questions that basically you didn't know enough to ask. But they're exactly it's exactly what you need to know and take hold of. And as you study the Bible and see more clearly who he is and come to know him in a deeper, richer way, you discover... That's what it means to have hope. Not that hope that God is going to solve all my problems in this life or that he never allows someone to leave me in this life, but hope that he is the life giver. The essence of hope in the scriptures is centered around resurrection. It's centered around a future hope that those who are in Christ, who go down to the grave, a day is coming when he will come and call us out of our graves, and he will give life to these mortal bodies. He's gonna make them beautiful, glorious bodies that are fit to live forever in his presence on a renewed earth. And even as I say that, I know there are some very sad people listening and they're thinking, but that just seems so far away. I want that person here with me now. And I'm just telling you that when that day comes, this life apart from the person you have loved will seem very short. It's hard for us to imagine eternity now. It's hard for us to picture the goodness, the richness, the satisfaction of living forever in the presence of God with those we have loved who are also in Christ. It's hard for us to imagine that it's going to be good enough to outweigh the amount of pain and sorrow we feel here and now. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to take hold of hope, is to trust in God's promises that what he's preparing for us is good, and it's going to be enough for us. It's going to be far beyond what we could have ever imagined or
1: hoped for. Nancy, thank you so much for sharing your heart with me and with our listeners and a message of such incredible hope. And listeners, you've been sitting in on a conversation with Nancy Guthrie. Um, my name is Sharon Betters, and Mark Inc. Ministries is offering you this resource to offer help and hope in the broken places of your life and also to help those who love you to understand a little better the journey that you're on. You can hear more stories that will offer help and hope when you visit markinc.org. That's M A R K I N C.org. We hope that you'll go there and listen to those stories and let us know how they have helped you in your own personal journey.
2: This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877 627 Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available from Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.